First Samuel 16 is kind of the beginning of a new chapter, not just uh, here in our text, but in Israel's history. It's the beginning of a new chapter, and this is really a pivot uh, for the group of people known as the nation of Israel, in that they started out with no human king, but the Lord explicitly stated that he was their king. They came to a point where they rejected his kingly rule over them and asked for a human king like all the other nations. And although the Lord was grieved by this, and although Samuel was grieved by this, the Lord, he wanted them to understand just what it was like to get what you asked for. And, and what it tells us is that, as we look at the story, is that most of the time, God's goodness toward us is precisely in holding back what we ask for. Because usually, we're not asking for the right thing. Usually, we're asking for something that we think will meet all of our needs, we think that will satisfy us, but really, it's going to leave us wanting. It's going to disappoint us. And the Lord knows that a lot of times if he gives us precisely what we're asking for, we're going to end up hurt. We're going to end up, uh, you know, in a, in a position where we are sick, where we are uh, upset, where we are disappointed. And what God wants us to understand is that the things that he gives us are perfect. The things that he gives us are perfect in, they, in their prescription. They are per perfect in what they are intended to do, in meeting our needs according to his will. They are also perfect in timing. And the reason so often that the Lord withholds those things from us that we are asking for is because he doesn't want to deliver to us that which we will perceive as coming from him, but yet which disappoints us. He doesn't want to attach a failure, something that's not going to meet our expectations, to his name. Because he knows that this will never satisfy us at its deepest level. He knows that it will fall short. But instead, he asks us to continually press into him. And this is what he did with the nation of Israel. He asked them to be the king, to, that they would trust him. He gave them a prescription in the law and how they could relate to him, but yet they asked for this human king. And the Lord does grant this human king uh, in the form of Saul. We saw that as this human king comes forth, he is tall, the, the tallest among all the people and the most handsome of all the people. He is the prototypical central casting king. It's like, if this was the guy you needed for a movie, like, this was it. He was the guy. Exactly what you would have thought. The stereotypical king is here. But yet, but yet we see that as Saul's life goes on, his behavior as a king is not in keeping with God's uh, rules for how a king should rule over the people and how the king should relate to God. Instead, 
Saul goes his own way. He rules in his own way. And uh, at several points, the Lord notes that Saul has been rejected. And the last time that we looked at the text in verse uh, or chapter 15, Saul is again rejected as the king of Israel before the Lord because he fails to obey. He fails to obey. He fails to follow uh, the laws that God has put in place. He fails to seek the Lord in his rule. But by contrast, all along, what has been said, even back to the earlier portions where uh, Saul is rejected uh, in, in the earlier, verse, uh, earlier chapters, and even in our text here, we find that Saul is rejected, but he's, we are also told that the Lord has provided another. He has his own man in mind. This is the people's choice. Now we come to the Lord's choice, the anointing of a new king. We read in our text this morning that this anointing happens at a pivotal point in Israel's story. The last time we see Samuel, he is breaking off his relationship with Saul. He's on his way out. But as he goes out, we read that Saul, or Samuel grieved over Saul. He grieves over Saul. And we come to the text continuing in, our, uh, in chapter 16 this morning, and we read this. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? We see that Samuel continues in this way. He continues to grieve over Saul. Now, there's a couple reasons why he could be grieving over Saul. Perhaps that... Uh, in his working relationship with Saul, from the moment that he began to anoint Saul, he was perhaps uh, growing close with him on a personal level. And he's like, look, like, I really want to see you succeed. I really want to see this work out. And so there, there's you know, kind of a, a practical reason, perhaps, that he could have uh, felt this way. It's always disappointing when those people that you have a personal interest in, that you're friends with, they... Uh, they don't act in character with God's character. It's always disappointing because your expectation is that they're going to pursue the Lord and they really let you down when they don't. It's hurt. It hurts. You, you wanted better. You hoped for better. You expected better. Of course, that's probably a component of this. But another component is exactly that Samuel is completely just sorrowful over Saul's rebellion. As someone who wanted to, or as someone who, who stood in the place of the people, who, who stood there as a mediator between God and the people, Samuel knows what it's like. He knows the opportunities that Saul had. But yet, Saul forsakes these opportunities for his own way. And he grieves, perhaps, over this. Beyond that, he also, it seems, was realizing that maybe we're coming into another period just like we exited with the judges, where now we don't have any leadership. Israel has rejected the Lord as king. They wanted a human king. Now we don't have a human king because the Lord has also rejected the human king, so now we're kind of aimless. Now we're a people that doesn't have any direction. Now we are, uh, you know, lost. 
And it seems that Samuel also was understanding that the people of Israel that saw his sin was seeping into uh, the nation of Israel. And that collectively, maybe they would disintegrate. Maybe they would be rejected by the Lord. But the Lord, he reminds Samuel that although Saul has failed as king, that he would not reject Israel, that he would not reject his people. Right? Because here's what he says to Samuel. How long are you going to mourn? You're acting like this is the end of the world. Like we're not going to move on. Like things aren't going to change. But instead he says, Samuel, look, like let's go. Because I have plans. I have things in the works. I'm not going to forsake my own people. He gives him a directive. Fill your horn with oil and go. All right, he knows. It's time we're going to anoint somebody. He's done this before. It's time to anoint somebody. And the Lord gives him further instructions, specific instructions. He says this, I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. It's a contrast in how the Lord selects Saul versus how the Lord selects David. If you recall how how Saul is brought about, Saul's character is on display for the entirety of the selection process. His character is on display. He's like, okay, well, there's this guy Saul, and he's out trying to find his father's donkeys, and he like gives up, and he's just like, he's really portrayed as somebody who, who doesn't really care. He wants to go back. He's it's it's seen that although Saul is being selected. He is somebody who doesn't have the Lord's hand of blessing on him as this uh, individual who would represent him properly to the people. But here, but here, the Lord doesn't beat around the bush with this new king. He says, look, like, I want you to go to this city. I want you to find this guy in this house. You're going to look for a son of Jesse. Pretty, like, this is like a pretty simple, straightforward mission. Because here's what we want, are wanting to understand. Here's what we're wanting to see here. That the Lord doesn't need Samuel. The Lord doesn't need him to go on this fact-finding mission and find out if this guy's qualified. He doesn't need him to go through this whole process, this rigmarole, and Saul's going to, you know, he's going to be the one that's going to be confirmed in these very many ways of finding the donkeys and prophesying with all these people. And it's, there's, there's nothing like that that's involved here. What is highlighted here is the very words that verse, two, or verse 1 ends with. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. What Samuel needs to know and what we need to know is that God is able to provide a new beginning and he doesn't need us to do it. He doesn't need us to be like, hey, well, it looks like you're a little bit lost, God. Like, I got some ideas. Like, I've been, like, you know, brainstorming. I've been in the think tank with some people. And we got some, like, you know, we got some real good ones that we think we might want to pitch you to see like what you're going to come up with. God doesn't need us to do this. He's not depending on us to do this because the king, the true king, he never loses control of his kingdom. 
Saul's lost. But the true king, he's not shaken. He's not confused. We never provide for the Lord. He always provides for himself. Right? This is what he says. I will provide for myself. The Lord doesn't need us to provide anything for him because he is our provision. All things that we end up with are stewards, we're stewards of because he has given them to us. We don't create things. We're entrusted with things that are from him. And they are for his glory to be used for him. It has nothing to do with like us being like, okay, well, I got you some things because you clearly don't have the resources, God. You clearly don't have the ideas. He is the provider. And so God always provides for himself. He's never lost. He always has everything that he needs. And he's got a plan. The plan is, go, let's get this new king. But Samuel... He's got some natural pushback. He's got some natural confusion here. Like, how are we going to execute this? Because, like, there's a tricky situation here. Verse 2, and Samuel said, how can I go? Because if Saul hears it, he will kill me. He's going to kill me. Saul's still the king. And we can see that he's, like, a little bit unruly. He kind of gets out of control very easily. He's controlled by fear. And he kind of does dumb stuff a lot. So Samuel rightly is kind of thinking like, okay, like if I, I could go do this, but essentially what this is, is like treason. I'm going to be like, hey, like even though I told you, Saul, that like the Lord's rejected you and you're not the king, uh, if I go to try to make a new king that the Lord has selected, then Saul's going to like fly off the handle, he's going to get crazy, he's going to start trying to kill me. So some natural, you know, considerations here. I think we would be aware of this. But God understands Samuel's circumstances. He understands Samuel's fear. And so he gives him an additional task. Right? Read carefully. An additional task. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. He gets an additional task. Right? Some have said, perhaps, that like, oh, well, like, you know, the Lord's trying to like, this is like really like a deceptive move. This is really like a deceptive move. He's like, okay, well, like, why don't you go and say like, I'm here for the sacrifice? Why, why don't you go and do that? Like, this is like kind of like your cover up. For like why you're why you're really there. But you see, these things are not in competition together. They work hand in hand. They work hand in hand. This isn't an act of deceit, but rather an additional task. This isn't to say, like, okay, well, you know, like, Saul's a little bit out of hand, so, uh, you know, let's come up with a way that we can, like, fake it, and maybe he won't get mad. If the Lord really wanted uh, Samuel to go and just anoint David, he would just be like, okay, like, I'm going to make Saul never find out, no problem, pow, done. Like, he doesn't need to have this, like, elaborate plan to deceive Saul and to deceive all the people. Like, that's not what this is about. 
if, if we think that that's what this is about, what we're saying is like, man, God's like maybe not as powerful as we thought he is. And maybe he's not ruling his kingdom because like can't handle little Saul. They're trying to like kill Samuel, right? It's just such a short-sighted view. What this is, is it gives an opportunity for the Lord to be worshipped. He's like, you can go do this. Why don't you also just have an opportunity to worship me while you're there? Well, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with ever gathering for this. Just because the Lord is working in another way, and maybe Samuel has this other task to accomplish while he's there, it's the Lord who's going to reveal to him when it's time. Samuel still doesn't have control of the situation. He doesn't, right? This, he doesn't have the whole scoop. Because the Lord says, I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me whom I declare to you. Basically, as always with the Lord's instructions in our lives, get yourself to the place, and then like, kind of like, I'll tell you what to do when you get there. But most of the time we're like, okay, well, so I need a little bit more security. Maybe you could like, kind of like flesh it out for me a little bit. Like, like when am I going to meet them? Like, like what else? Like, am I, do I need to plan on being here a long time? Well, like, we want all the details. But for Samuel, he's banking on the Lord's faithfulness. He's not worried about how long this is going to take. He's not worried about any of these external circumstances, aside from the ones that he has faithfully brought to the Lord, and the Lord has said, let's go. I'm going to handle it. He doesn't use his one point of concern as a way to uh, get out of his task, but rather he brings it to the Lord as a situation to, uh, to address. And the Lord gives him an additional task to perform. But he never says, like, well, Saul's not going to find out. He never says that, you know, you're going to be completely successful. And he just says, like, do this also. The Lord never lets us lock these things up because otherwise then we start to make judgments on our own about, like, oh, yeah, well, that's not worth it. The outcome will be this. So, like, or I'm just going to not do that. It's not up to us. We don't control those things. Again, our job is to obey. As he directs us, we obey. Simple. Get used to serving the Lord without all the details. Because the Lord doesn't give us all the details the majority of the time. Right? Get used to it. And you can get used to it. You can become comfortable in it in the sense that he allows us, he allows us as his people to trust in his character to look back at the entire history of his work and to say, you know, there are plenty of people that the Lord has done this with and he has been faithful to his name, to his character again and again and again. He has not let them down at any point. He's not ever let us down. He's not ever let me down. So why is he going to start letting me down now? His record is perfect. And he asks us to trust him. And this is exactly what Samuel does. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? Right? That's a question to ask. 
Who asks that to the priest? Do you come peaceably? Right? He's not like some crazy, like, warlord coming in here. He's not coming to attack the city. What's happening here? Well, at first, we find Samuel obeys. He gets the word from the Lord. He's like, let's go. And as he comes out, the elders of the city come out to, to meet him, and they're described as being trembling. Now, here's how we understand this. There's two ways that you can kind of go about this, two ways you can understand this. They have an unexpected visit. Like, this is kind of out of the ordinary in Samuel's typical rotation in visiting the city. So it's like, okay, like, why do you have this special trip here? One, that's kind of like a little bit weird, right? We, we're not ready to expect, we're not expecting you, but you show up. They go out to meet him. One of the reasons for this type of trip that would happen for a, a, a priest to make this sort of trip or a prophet to make this sort of trip, Deuteronomy 21 tells us, was in certain instances when there was a crime that was unsolved, uh, they would have the elders of the town, they would call for a, a, a priest to come and to sacrifice a heifer to atone for sins. And so Samuel shows up here, he's got like his heifer, and it's like, oh shoot, like what happened that we don't know about? Like what's going on here? Like something bad happened, like we got to deal with some judgment here. So maybe they're assuming the worst. But on top of that, the last thing that happened with Samuel, perhaps they got word of Samuel's last act. Right? Samuel and, and Agag. He's like, whoa, like this guy Samuel, he's like super intense now. What happened? He's like hacking people up. He's getting crazy. Like maybe they're like, whoa, like are we good? Like he shows up and everyone's like, a little bit worried about like why he's here. Like what's happening? Verse 5, and he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. So here we find uh, this kind of second mention of Jesse. Now Jesse is the descendant of Ruth and Boaz. Remember when we studied the book of Ruth and you kind of read the genealogy there at the end, right? This is uh, the descendant of Ruth and Boaz. And he belongs to the tribe of Judah. He's here. Uh, and it appears from the text that he's kind of one of these elders in the city. He's a civic leader. And so he's kind of with them. He goes out to them to gather with the people, and, and he's invited to this sacrifice with the other elders of the town. Now, Jesse and his sons were not there to just witness, you know, a sacrifice performed, but rather, they, this, the idea here was that they were sharing in this kind of, uh, essentially a peace offering that would be sacrificed in, in, a, um, in an offering for atonement. When they offered the sacrifice, the entire animal would be consumed. But in a peace offering, they would offer the sacrifice, and then they would get to partake of uh, the meat from the animal. And so here, it looks like they're about to have just this celebratory, ceremonial meal together to enjoy a good time, fellowshipping around the Lord. And we find, in verse 6, uh, as they are gathered here, they invited them to the sacrifice. When they came together, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Common sense, Samuel's here, he's on the scene, he's like, yo, I've seen this before, like, 
when we picked Saul. I got it. I know what's up. He looks at the tallest, handsomest guy. He's like, this guy's clearly the pick. Pow. No problem. He is in. This is it. He's in Jesse's family. He's the guy. But what happened is that he develops these thoughts. He develops this perspective apart from the Lord's direction. Because he wasn't told to figure it out. He was told, show up and I'll tell you what's what. He's already jumping the gun. He's already moving ahead. Because he is making the common assumptions that we all make when we have a portion of the information. Oh, yep, the Lord wanted me to go here. I'm here. That's the most logical choice. Yep, that's it. Pow, we're done. Because that's how we operate. But you know, and I know, that the Lord loves to operate from weakness. He moves to the most illogical position, and he's like, yep, that makes sense. Got to deliver Israel? I got this great guy named Gideon who's like the biggest chicken in the history of chickens, right? He is like a horrible leader. He's like a guy who's afraid of everybody. And then I'm going to like give him like a little bit of a boost of confidence. He's going to get strong enough and then there's going to develop a big army. But I'm going to be like, oh, your big army is super lame. Like, let's get rid of all the big army until we can get down to like the smallest army possible. And then we're going to work with that, right? Just Horrible, horrible decisions in terms of logic, how you would fight a battle. We saw this with uh, one of the earlier armies with Jonathan and his armor bearer. Two people against like a ton of people. Yeah, it's probably not great odds. Like this isn't a logical attack plan. But yet again, the Lord working from weakness. The Lord working out of order of what we would expect. And so, before we jump into things, when we're working with the Lord, when we're walking with him, pretty much I've learned it's never the logical choice. It's never that. It's always too obvious. It's too obvious. It's like, I, I just learned, don't start there at the most logical position. I just tell the Lord, convince me that it's the most logical one, because that never happens. It's rarely that. Samuel should have learned from his earlier experience because he picked a man like this earlier with the Lord. Here it is, Saul, the tall, handsome guy. Boom, he's the king. But he should have seen that, like, that doesn't work. Now, here's the reasons why that doesn't work. We'll get, well, I don't want to jump ahead of myself. Let's, we'll get to it in a moment here. The Lord directs him as he is developing these thoughts. He's like, oh, Eliab, tall, handsome guy. There he is. That's the winner. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, he gives him a rebuke straight out the gate. Do not look on the appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He tells Samuel, your superficial considerations don't matter. Don't look on the appearance or the height of his stature. Like, that's not a consideration in 
if this guy is going to be the leader. I'm not worried about that, the Lord says. And sometimes when we read this, when we read the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, what we, what we often translate this to is kind of like this, a spiritual interpretation of don't judge a book by its cover, right? Where we're like, oh yeah, like that guy looks like awesome, but like maybe it's not awesome. So like you can't just judge a book by its cover. So we need to like make sure, make sure that like we got we to look on the inside. We got to find somebody who's, who's like, you know, a, a considerate person, somebody who has some empathy, somebody who wants to have, you know, these thoughtful perspectives. And what happens most of the time is that we translate this to mean exactly like, okay, well, like, we can't just look for, like, the person who, like, looks great because they're probably prideful. We have to find the person who looks great and is also nice. But that's not what, that's not what, what the Lord's looking for either. He's not looking for nice people. He is looking precisely for people who are in pursuit of his heart who want to love him and know him above all else. He's not looking for people who are nice. He's looking for people who want to walk with him and want to chase after him in every aspect, every area of their lives. He's looking for people who are sold out and surrendered to him. He's not looking for behavior modification. He's looking for heart transformation. He's not looking for those outward actions to be like, oh yeah, like people say this guy's a nice guy. He's looking for someone who shares his heart. I'm sure that David's other brothers were like probably pretty nice, fine people. Like they're probably okay. But they didn't have the passion to know Jesus, to enjoy him in this way that David does. And so... Samuel now has the rubric by which he can view the other, uh, the other candidates. We read in verse 8, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he says, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. So he goes through all of the... All of the uh, Jesse's sons who were present, no problem, but none of these guys are who the Lord's looking for. Now Samuel knows he's got his one lesson, his one directive, obey the Lord, and the directive that the Lord told him was, go to this place, meet this guy, one of his sons is going to be the king. The Lord has said, it's not any of these guys. So what Jesse doesn't do is be like, okay, well, like maybe I was wrong. I'm going to go to like another place. Like maybe, like maybe you want to parade him by again. Maybe the Lord's going to say something. Instead, he's learned that the Lord's not looking on the outward appearance, but the Lord's looking on the heart. So what's the most illogical thing? Maybe there's a son who is so low in the family stature who is so unprepared to attend the feast that, like, maybe the Lord wants to, like, use, use this unexpected person? 
And this is why he responds to Jesse. Verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. When Samuel tells Jesse, are all your sons here? No doubt, 100%, Jesse is hearing Samuel say, is this the best you got? And what a moment for Jesse to say, to look back on his life and to be like, did I not produce something that the Lord could work with? Look at all of my investment, all of my, all of my uh, time that I spent honing my sons. They're strong, tall, handsome. They're equipped. They're great leaders. It's an opportunity for Jesse to build his entire identity on his parenting, to build his identity on what he has contributed. Because then when it's brought to the Lord, the Lord's like, nah. But understand, what the Lord is is saying is that these men will not be the king. He doesn't say that their lives are worthless. He doesn't say that they won't be useful to him in the future. He doesn't say that they will not be a catalyst for God's glory. He just says, this isn't the right task for them. But it's an opportunity for Jesse to to look back and to be like, man, I really blew it. An opportunity for him to look at all of his hard work and effort and to get lost in his identity. I think we're, we're prone to the same thing. We put in a bunch of work and then it turns out that the Lord's like, actually, like, like, like that was, I, I exactly wanted you to do what you did. But I'm not going to use that in the way that you thought I wanted you to use that. I'm going to take your effort and your work. And maybe that was only for your personal sanctification. Like, I don't need to necessarily do anything with it. We don't want to have our identities wrapped up in these things. Our identity is in Christ. He has this temptation, no doubt. But Samuel, he is trying to stay firm in his identity in the Lord. Be like, I'm going to obey. This is my only task. I'm not worried about offending this guy and him feeling like his family is not good enough. I'm going to continue to press. And he says, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So Samuel looks over all the guys. He's like, no, none of these guys are the king. He realizes like there's got to be another son around. Tells Jesse, like, yo, let's do this. Let's find this other guy. Jesse, you can see kind of his thought process because he doesn't say like, oh, I got this other guy, David. He doesn't even mention his son's name. He's like, I got another one. And he's not here. He wasn't even invited to this feast. Like, he probably smells like sheep. He's probably dirty. Probably couldn't get in in time. More than that, as a shepherd, it's basically a servant's job. So he's like the lowest on the totem pole. He's out there. Putting in hard work. Well, those sons who would be more privileged, who would be honored, have access to this great sacrificial feast. 
But what we know is that although Jesse is kind of bringing forth these points of disqualification or these reasons for David not being at the feast are precisely his qualifications. It's precisely that he is the lowest. It's precisely that he's the weakest. It's precisely that he is described as a shepherd. Because throughout history, Israel's history, all of God's leaders are most often described as shepherds. They learn out in the field, in this job, to be servants. Not to rule and reign, but to meet the needs of their flock. They learn how to operate in a dirty environment. You see, because God's leaders, they don't, they don't operate in this you know, surgical room where it's like everything's perfectly clean. You're getting down and dirty. It's a sacrificial job, and here, all of God's leaders are described in this way. As shepherds. If you recall, Saul couldn't even keep track of a couple donkeys for a few days. He was shown to not be a shepherd. And so Jesse kind of throws this, this description out there like, yeah, like he couldn't come because he's like a shepherd. He's like out doing the sheep. And most logically, he's probably thinking like, okay, like Samuel's going to be like, okay, well, it's like definitely not him. But instead, he's like, okay, we'll go get him. Like, we'll, we'll wait. <laughs> it's like all the food's ready. Everything's ready. And instead of Samuel catching the hint, like, oh, yeah, you know, it'll take a while for him to get in and get prepared and be like, you know, uh, for him to go through the process of sanctifying himself and cleansing himself for the sacrificial feast, like, it's going to take a little bit for that. So, like, let's just kind of go ahead. The Lord's not in a hurry. He's like, go get him. Samuel's just like, we'll wait. We got it. David is only called to the feast because Samuel insists on him being there. Other than that, he's completely overlooked. He's so insignificant in his family. They're, they try to like pass him over even when Samuel asks for him. Verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. All right, so here he is. He comes in. He's all ready, good to go. What's the description? Ruddy, beautiful eyes, handsome. So, so far the main differences that we see from Saul and from his brothers is that like he's not tall. Like, that's basically the main description that's different. History tells us that David was probably between 10 and 15 years old at this point. So he's also the least equipped, the, least, the person with the least amount of life experience, the person who is the most illogical choice to lead a group of people. Yep, 10-year-old, all set. Let's give him the keys to the kingdom. You're all good to go. Like, this is the clearly, like, not the most logical choice here. But he's got the same good looks. Everyone's like, oh yeah, this guy's awesome. 
But what separates him, even though he gets the same description as the others? Because the Lord, as soon as he comes in, the Lord's like, this is him. Arise, anoint him, for this is him. See, what separates David from the others is that heart. That he is in pursuit of God. He is chasing after God, wanting to obey God, passionate about knowing, knowing the living God. It's that internal that matters. It's not that these things of being, you know, this tall, handsome person, oh yeah, that's a disqualifier, yep, we can't have anybody who looks great up there, that's, you're totally out. The point is that it's about the heart. This is exactly why his description isn't like, well, you know, he wasn't the best looking, but the Lord worked with it. It was like, he, he was exactly the same as the others, but it was the heart that was the change. We're meant to see that that's the big thing. That he is pursuing God wholeheartedly. Verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, we have here the practical anointing, the oil on the head. But this is symbolic of the Lord's anointing him as king. But the pouring out of oil is also symbolic of uh, God's, God's spirit. And here, in a real sense, a real anointing happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon him. He was prepared. He was a vessel ready to serve the Lord and so the Holy Spirit doesn't come upon him temporarily in this sense that it came upon Saul to equip him to do these short bursts of activity. But rather, David was a vessel prepared for the Lord, ready to say, you know, I want to know you, God, more than anything else. This is why, as you read through the Psalms, David can say, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of iniquity. He's like, you could give me like the best, hottest tent, like the most insane palace in a wicked kingdom, and I would get rid of that in a moment. To just be there and to be the, the doorman for God's house. To just stand there and be like, open the door, yeah, come in. Because he was passionate about knowing God. He, he was prepared. He pursued the Lord. And so as soon as the Lord was like, it's your turn. I'm ready to work with you. The Holy Spirit had a place to come and to equip him to do all that God has called him to do. All that God has called him to do. Because it's the Lord who equips his people, who equips even a 10-year-old for kingly rule by the filling of his Holy Spirit. You don't need to know how to rule a kingdom at 10 years old if you're only following, following the direction of the true king. If you can follow directions of the true king, if you care about the true king and where he wants to go and what he wants to do, you can follow directions and you can do this. David didn't want to have a mind of his own. He didn't want to go and be like, okay, well, here are all the things I want to accomplish and things I want to do. He's like, I, I want to know God. 
And he's the king. He's the king over all Israel. I'm going to follow him wherever he goes. And I'm going to execute on his orders, what he tells me to do. He was prepared, ready to follow the Lord, ready to go into every task, seeking the Lord. That same spirit, that same spirit indwelling him, that indwells God's people today. This is why we can obey him. This is why we can read God's word and, and we can read the very words of Jesus that say, if you love me, keep my commandments. We can say, I, I do love you. And I do want to keep your commandments. And your spirit exists within me that empowers me to obey you. That equips me to obey you. Because apart from that, we don't have those desires naturally. We don't, we don't want to obey. But it's his spirit that allows us to obey. That enables us to obey. That empowers us to obey. It's his spirit that reminds us that we are a part of his family. That we are his children. Now, one of the things that I love most about the Lord's commandments is how obsessed David was with them. Because he always wanted to obey. This is how he differs from Saul so greatly. When you read Psalm 119, it's, an it's like the longest passage, and it's just him talking about how obsessed he is with the Lord's, the Lord's commandments. He's like, I love your statutes. I love your commandments. Your law is perfect. Like, he's just like... He just is so obsessed. Like he just goes on and on and on in every verse for hundreds of verses about how much he loves to obey the Lord. How can he do that? Why can he do that? Well, the scriptures tell us that we ought to obey his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. That we should obey the Lord's commandments and they're not burdensome. When are, God's, when are anyone's commandments not burdensome? When you love them. When you love them. Commandments become burdensome when you, when you don't really value the person giving the commands. Commandments become burdensome when you think that you can do it a better way. You have a different command that you want to do. But when you, heart, mind, and soul, love someone... They could tell you to do the dumbest stuff, and you're like, oh, yeah, no problem. I'm going to do that. Uh-huh. I'm so happy to do that for you. Like, it could just, like, not make sense at all. Right? The perfect example of this is absolutely when, you know, uh, women are pregnant, and they make these insane requests in the middle of the night to get, like, craving foods. And all of a sudden, husbands are up, like, chasing down, like, sardines at, like, 4 a.m. And, you know, like, oh, I need pickles. And, like, oh, I need a giant Slurpee. Like, you're just, like, running around. Like, why are we, this makes no sense. This is completely illogical. But you're like, yeah, got you, babe. On the way. In no other world does that make sense. It just doesn't make sense. You don't do that for anyone else. You just, like, just wait for tomorrow. Figure it out on, like, do you really want? There's, there's no way that that ever makes sense. But it's the love that compels this. And so when Jesus tells us, if you love me, keep my commandments, he's putting that on us as a bit of a test to say, are my commandments burdensome to you? 
Do you want to obey? And it causes all of us to take stock of our lives, to be like, am I annoyed by the Lord's commandments? Am I annoyed by like the things he's asking me to do? Because we want to be people who are obsessed with him, knowing and enjoying him, wanting to draw near to him, because he is good. He's good. He's the good king, the good shepherd who rescues us. This is exactly how Jesus is described. He is the greater than David. He says in John 10, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He is that sacrificial shepherd. He is the one who cares about us at the deepest level. And when you see that kind of love and care, when you see that demonstrated towards you, when you're confronted with the reality of that generous love, then it's easy to be like, yeah, I want to listen. Tell me how I can know you more. Tell me how I can serve you more faithfully. Tell me how I can obey you in every aspect, every area. We're compelled by God's love towards us to love him back. We love him because he first loved us. If you don't see that he first loved us, it's going to be real hard to love him. He first loved us when we were dead in our trespasses, when we were far from him, when we were separated from him. And we draw near daily by his own bloodshed as he laid down his life for the sheep. Raised again by the Holy Spirit for our justification and then ascends to the Father giving us the Holy Spirit so that we might be equipped and enabled to obey him, to walk with him in all areas of life. It's an exciting journey when we see him clearly, when we want to walk with him, when we recognize that he is the only true anointed king, the only one deserving of all glory, all honor, all praise. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful We're thankful that you have laid down your life for us. That you have made peace between God and man. You were the mediator. That you make a way for us to know you and enjoy you. And we want to come boldly. We want to come as those who are invited to know you more intimately, to know you more deeply. And so stir up our affections for you. We want to see you clearly, that you are one who has loved us faithfully. You have taken our place at the cross. You have substituted yourself in a place, that, in a place where we should have been punished. Lord, you were crushed for us. And so, Lord, we say thank you. We want to exalt you. Help us to be a people who are keeping your commandments. We're loving you in every way. And so, Lord, we turn to respond to you now.
Work in our hearts. We love you. Amen.